marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You have a man and a woman, each individually created in God's image, to reflect who he is. And mysteriously, somehow, when those two make a covenant and come together, they reflect him even more in demonstrating his character to one another by showing his love and compassion and grace and forgiveness to one another, and together in their unity, modeling for a watching world the Trinitarian love of God that we know and love. It's a really beautiful thing when it meets that kind of ideal. But all too often, sin gets in the way of that picture-perfect marriage that you see on the covers of books and on the covers of flyers for marriage retreats. And we find ourselves sinning against our spouse and our spouse sinning against us and we hurt one another and we act selfishly instead of sacrificially. And there ends up being this pain and this distortion of that image that God created. And sometimes it goes even beyond that into a place where the marriage seems to be so distorted or broken that we we go, does this even represent God anymore? Is this even representing the image of who God is anymore? Particularly when we find ourselves in those places where beyond our control, our spouse is acting in ways that are not in, in line with God's instruction. They are not following His pattern for life and marriage, or perhaps may have rejected God and His patterns for life and marriage entirely. And so then we have to ask ourselves, how do I honor God in my marriage when my spouse refuses to? And that is the question that God answers in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at this morning. So would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The context for this goes all the way back to chapter 2 starting in verse 11, where Peter is writing and he's saying, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And if you remember when we were talking about this at the beginning of December, I I was saying that, that these verses are sort of like a rope, like a lifeline. That, that we are holding on to this rope. Keep, keep your conduct among the Gentiles so that though they may speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they would, even if they would see what you're doing and they're going, oh no, I'm going to slander you. I don't like what you're doing. That's dumb. Don't do that. Yet they'll see what you're doing and because of your good conduct, they will observe that and go, that is really amazing. Even though I disagree with you or I don't want to agree with you, I find that I can't help but respect what you're doing because of the way you carry yourself and because of the things that you're doing. And hopefully at some point they may even come to say, you know what, I had totally disagreed with you, but because of the way I have seen you acting, I want to follow Jesus too. And it's as though you're holding a rope and they're hanging on the other end and they may be saved by hanging on to that rope like they're hanging off of a bridge and you've got this one end and by the things that you're doing and them observing your life, they may be saved. That's a possibility. And that's the context for then this whole section that begins in verse 13, saying, um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. S- submit yourself. Because here's, here's Peter writing to a group of people that are um, what he calls exiles. You're living in a foreign place, in a place that you don't feel like you belong because the culture there is very different than you. Their priorities are different, the strategies are different, the way of living life is different. Everything is done differently. And so you find yourself being a stranger in the land where you are living. So what do you do when you're a Christian living in a non-Christian land? Where the the governing authorities and the laws of the land and the rules of the land are not Christian in nature. What do you do then? And what he says is, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And begins to um, give us some examples, beginning with uh, the emperor and governors, the government. How do you interact with the government? Then moving on from there to slaves and masters. Then using Jesus as an example of his submitting to the difficult circumstances of his life on earth, what it looks like to glorify God in these different situations, and then he enters into a discussion about marriage. I I think particularly um, referring to those people who, having now become Christians, find that they are um, alone in that in their marriage. They have become Christians, but their spouse has not. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Because I have become a Christian and I have a new understanding of what marriage is. Marriage means something different in the church than it does outside the church. You'll recognize that very quickly when you start to even become, begin talking about the definition of marriage. You talk about the definition of marriage inside the church, and that's very different than when you start talking about the definition of marriage outside the church. Or what is marriage for? Or how does it work? 
or how should we do it? All of these things are very different when you're talking about that within the church as, as a Christian versus not a Christian. And so when you find yourself in a marriage where that is d- divided because you both now, having entered into this um, covenant of marriage or a legal contract of marriage, now find that you have differing views on what it means to be married, that can be very difficult. It can be really difficult. But I think that the principles here apply even for those who are in a Christian marriage. Sometimes you're married to a Christian, you're both claiming to follow Christ, and you're going, except my spouse is not. My spouse is not following Christ. They claim to, they appear to, sometimes they put on a good face, people at church may even think so. But the reality is, when I look at what the Bible calls us to as a married person, I'm not seeing that in my spouse. What do I do about that? And, and while I um, would love for every person in this room to have the ideal kind of marriage, that picture-perfect kind of marriage that I talked about at the very beginning, I do want to give you some hope and encouragement That you can glorify God even when your spouse does not. In your marriage, you can. This is how he begins in this section. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is very much like verse 12 when he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now he's saying, okay, so wives, those of you who are married to someone who is not following Jesus, honor them. Respect them. Be, be subject to them so, so that they may see what you're doing. And even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Don't you love that little play on word here? Even if they don't believe the word of God... They're not obeying the Word of God. God has given clear instruction about this is what you should be doing as a husband. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. This is what you should be doing as a husband, and they're not obeying that. And you might find yourself going, "Um, this is not what God has called you to do. And sometimes, a very receptive husband, and I'm sure that one exists out there somewhere, (laughs) might hear those words and say, you're right, I'm very sorry, and will repent of their sin. But all too often, when you say, hey, this is not what the Bible is calling you to, 
the reaction is not that kind and gentle. And so what do you do? Because the words are not working, right? Ideally, we would just be able to say at any time to anyone, oh, do you recognize that that sin? And they would say, oh, thank you very much for pointing that out. I repent of this sin and will now walk in righteousness. But as lovely as it would be if we all acted that way, we just don't that often. And so we have to instead resort to modeling. This is what it looks like. And that's what he's calling for here. For wives to be subject to their own husbands. Notice that word, to your own husbands. This is not all women be subject to all men. This is be subject to your own husband for this purpose. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by observing the conduct of their wives. In an area in which your husband is not obeying the word of God. Maybe they have completely rejected the Word of God and God Himself and want nothing to do with Him. Or maybe in a particular instance, they are not obeying the Word of God. In either case, to walk in a humble, gentle way and by your conduct, seek to win them. Because who knows, but that God might win your spouse through your conduct. What an awesome privilege that is. What an awesome opportunity. And how radically countercultural. In a day and an era where we are a, as close to pain free as we can be, we are a pain averse people. If you go to the store and you have a headache, there's a whole aisle of things to help you not have pain anymore. If you have pain in your stomach, there's another aisle for that. If you have pain in your nose, pain on your foot, there, there's a whole um, kinds of things to deal with that, to remove pain so that we don't have to have pain anymore. We, people are medicating to remove problems and deal with problems all the time. And if you find yourself in a marriage that is no longer making you happy or is no longer fulfilling you, then our culture would tell you that marriage isn't working for you. You really should get out. Because it's not working for you. You're no longer happy there. We used to be happy. When we first got together, she made me very happy and I made her very happy. And now we have these differences that are irreconcilable. And so we just won't be married anymore. It's easier if we part ways. In a day and age when, when that's the solution, what he's calling us to is saying, look, this is a difficult thing that I'm, I'm giving you the opportunity to do, but God can be glorified in this. In your modeling for your spouse a Christian response to adverse circumstances, to pain and to suffering. 
And I have walked with people and talked with people uh, through this thing. And, and I stand up here in fear and trepidation to talk about this to a whole group of people all at once because I am far more comfortable having this discussion one-on-one. Which is why we preach through the Bible sequentially like this so that I can't avoid passages like this. Because these are difficult conversations to have with people one-on-one. This is what's going on. This is what's happening with my spouse. This is how I'm trying to respond, but it's really hard. And to walk alongside somebody and counsel them and encourage them, when very often they're having other people tell them, you need out. You need to get out. And they're saying, but I don't feel free to leave yet. But how is this honoring God? How can this honor God when my spouse has no interest in honoring God? When I look at what the picture of marriage is supposed to be and the way that it's supposed to work and mine is not like that at all, what do I do? This is the opportunity that you've been given. That you, as the spouse, might be standing on top of that bridge and holding the rope and going, I am going to trust in God through this whole thing. And I am praying for the day that God will relieve the pain and the suffering here. I am praying for the opportunity that my spouse will come to know Him and to reflect who Jesus is and walk in His path so that our marriage can be all that we might dream for it to be. But in the midst of this right now, I am just going to be faithful and walk and trust that God will do this. And I will continue to entrust myself to Him and hold on to this rope and hope and pray that my spouse will hang on and climb up that rope onto this bridge. Your responsibility as the spouse is not to pull really hard and haul them up onto the bridge. That's not your responsibility. That's between your spouse and God. It's between them and God, whether or not they are saved. That's, it's not your responsibility to drag them kicking and screaming onto the bridge. But it is an opportunity that you have to hang on to that rope and to continue to entrust yourself to God and model for your spouse what that looks like so that they might, along with the movement of the Holy Spirit, climb up that rope and find themselves saved in a place of salvation. And God used you to do that. And He glorified Himself in the process through you. That's the opportunity that you have. Now, there are all kinds of really difficult situations in which that rope might end up being used as a weapon instead of a a lifeline for someone. And you may end up having to let go of that rope. And God has provided uh, church leadership. uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 talks about the the role of the elders and the overseers in in the church to help walk through those extreme and dangerous situations and help walk you through those things. 
But there is an opportunity to model for your spouse what it looks like to follow Christ and what it looks like to trust in Christ even when things aren't going the right way. It's been a great privilege for me over the years to walk with people and talk with them. It's been painful. For me, sometimes it's been painful to watch people in their marriage and going, I just don't know what to do anymore. And my heart aches as I pray for them and with them and talk with them and try and support them and encourage them. But how encouraged I have been by the model of a faithful spouse in a broken marriage. It's amazing the way that that demonstrates the love of Jesus. And it was Jesus who was the direct context for this. Because in, at the end of chapter 2, when he's been talking about servants being subject to even unjust masters, he says, for this is a gracious thing, this is verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I can read about that in the Scriptures, about how Jesus did that for us, but the way that I have understood this most clearly is in the example that I have seen in people walking faithfully in His steps. That He set the example and they faithfully are walking in His steps, modeling Christ to an observing world. And it's fantastic. Not easy. But marvelous and wonderful nonetheless. Because they are expressing the love of Jesus. And I have been so encouraged to walk alongside People who are doing that and are modeling the love of Jesus to their spouse, even when their spouse is not following Him. So that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. When they see how gently respectfully you walk alongside them. Because believe me, they know that they don't deserve to be treated the way that you're treating them. They know they deserve worse. Sometimes in really broken situations, it's infuriating that you won't retaliate and respond in like manner to the way that you have been treated. Because they want to justify their actions by having you retaliate. 
And when you walk in gentleness and with respect towards someone that is not respectable in the eyes of the world, it speaks volumes to who you are and to the love of Jesus. Do not, he says, let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't, don't have the emphasis be an external beauty. This, this is not the same as, ladies, don't wear makeup. Don't look pretty because your beauty should be internal. This is saying that's just, this is where the focus should be. The focus should be on the internal rather than the external. So don't worry about having the whole thing be this external, the, the braiding of the hair and all of the, I mean, let's be honest. When we have major celebrations and ladies get dressed up, they look wonderful, beautiful to have the hair all braided and to have um, the, the gold jewelry on and the clothing that looks just right. And you go, wow, that's beautiful. But he's saying, but that's not what the emphasis should be. The emphasis should be on the hidden person of the heart. So rather than the things that the world is seeing, the people are seeing, the measures and standards by which everybody else is saying, that's beautiful. He's saying the hidden person of the heart is what God sees. And God says, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. That is where the beauty comes from. That hidden person of the heart with the gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Isn't that a, a great contrast? The, some of the language in this and the way that he uses it in these verses is just wonderful to me. When he's talking about this external beauty and then he contrasts that with the hidden person of the heart that God sees. What's God looking at? Well, the only things that we can look at are the external things. But God's not looking at that. Do you remember when um, Samuel was talking with God and saying, Oh God, that must be the new king. Look at how big and strong he is. And God says, that's not the new king. And then the next son of Jesse comes walking in. And Samuel says, oh, okay, that one. I get it, God. That's the new king. Look at how big and strong he is. Nope, that's not the new king. And son after son comes walking in and Samuel goes, oh, that one. Because look at how big and strong. And God says, you're looking at the wrong things. I'm looking at the hidden person of the heart. And David is going to be the new king because he's a man after my own heart. And when God is looking at you and that you are a person after God's own heart, He is looking at you and saying, and that is beautiful. And it glorifies God. 
And the appearances, when we're in that kind of a marriage, and it's the brokenness, and we're feeling it, and we're going, this is really embarrassing. I feel ashamed because of the nature of my marriage, that people are seeing this, and everybody is seeing this and knows, and I feel embarrassed about this, and what Peter is saying is, but what God is looking at is He's seeing how you're interacting in that broken situation, and He's saying, that is gorgeous. I love the way that you are interacting there. I love the way that you are responding there. I love the gracious tone that you have. The gentle and quiet spirit that you have. I love the way that you are responding in gentleness. This is beautiful in my sight. For this, verse 5, is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This gentle and quiet spirit that, that um, is not afraid of the intimidation. And in thinking about this, I, I was thinking about a couple of... Um, Places in which Sarah is entrusting herself to God. There's only one place that, that Sarah refers to God. Here he, he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And so, okay, we'll do a quick Bible search. Where did Sarah refer to him as Lord? Only one place. When Sarah laughs, she overhears and, and hears that... that um, God is going to provide them a, a son in their old age. And she says, <laughs> Is my Lord going to provide me joy in my old age? That even in that moment of uh, levity, at, at a point in which she might have spoken a little bit more derogatorily, is the old man really going to give me a son? She yet speaks of him respectfully. But there were a couple of other situations in which she obeyed Abraham and, and followed his leading when he was less than fully trusting in God, right? When, when we're talking about um, a spouse who is not obeying God, the, the example that I thought of was Sarah walking with him and, and Abraham saying, okay, look, we're going in here and you are very beautiful. I mean, when people look at you, Whew. And so we're about to go in here and all of these foreigners, they're going to see how beautiful they, that you are and they're going to kill me so that they can take you. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to say that you're my sister. And she went, okay. And she entrusted herself to God. And God cared for her. And provided for her in the midst of that situation. When, with all respect to Abraham, he was acting pretty stupidly. And yet she follows that and entrusts herself to God saying, I am going to believe that God is going to carry me through this. 
I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I believe that God will carry me through this. And this is the same thing that we have in the example of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, uh, chapter 21, uh, chapter 21, chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is, in my view, impossible to continue to do what is right in the face of adverse circumstances like that if you don't believe this. If there is not going to be some kind of ultimate justice, how would you submit yourself to that? Subject yourself to that kind of uh, treatment or environment. But we look at the model of Jesus and how He uh, went through and He suffered all kinds of injustices, having done nothing wrong, having committed no sin, having no deceit in His mouth, not responding when people were trying to provoke Him. And when He suffered, He did not respond in any way except to entrust Himself to God the Father and to say, God, You judge justly. And I am going to entrust myself to you. And what a privilege to walk alongside people who are doing the same thing. And they're saying, this is not fair. This is not right. But I am entrusting myself to him who judges justly. And he will make it right in the end. And who knows but that at some point God might redeem this situation. And my spouse too will glorify God on the day when Christ returns. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. If you, if you are not intimidated into um, straying from the things that God has called you to. This is the opportunity that you have to walk alongside an unbelieving spouse. And then he goes on to say, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands. What, what, like, likewise. What, what is this Likewise. Going all the way back to verse 13 of chapter 2, subject yourself to every human institution. Be subject to every human institution. That's the command that's given as the heading for this whole section in which he has given these examples of the context of government and slaves and masters and then marriage. And so husbands, you likewise subject yourself, uh, submit to the human institution of marriage and live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We're just coming off of uh, the previous verse where he tells women not, not to fear or be intimidated by the intimidating. 
Not to be afraid of the things that are fearful. Because by and large, when we're talking about a marriage situation, we have um, physically, the man can be intimidating toward the woman. And may try to use physical stature in order to um, force or cajole or make the, the spouse follow or obey or submit. But to believing husbands, to those who are following Jesus, there is no place for that. None. But to live with your wife in an understanding way. Showing honor. Respect. Grace. Gentleness. To your spouse. Who was created by God in His image. To be a partner with you in marriage. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. There is no status difference between the man and the woman. Both are heirs of the grace of life together. And so treat your wife in an understanding way. Walking with them in gentleness and humility, graciously. You see, again, I think the context that we're talking about is believing husbands and un- with their unbelieving wives now, right? We're talking about believing uh, believers with unbelieving spouses. can be applied in other situations where our spouse may not be uh, following God in everything. But specifically, we're talking about believers married to unbelievers. And so likewise, husbands married to unbelieving wives, how should you respond to them? You must come to church with me. Nope. You may not intimidate them into following Christ or demand that they follow Christ. But instead, to live with them in an understanding way, recognizing that very often there is this physical discrepancy that is not fair. And I've talked with guys before that they're like, it's not my fault. You know, if you've seen Princess Bride and and Andre the Giant is like, it's not my fault I'm the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. (laughs) Right? And so I've talked with guys that are big men. And they're being told, you're intimidating. And they're going, it's not my fault. I'm just big. I sound loud. That's not my fault. It's just who I am. I can't be different than this. You have to be. You have to live with your wife in an understanding way, understanding that physical difference and compensating for it by your general attitude with gentleness and respect and honor. 
Because whether or not you think it's fair, or whether or not it's hard, you must. Your wife also thinks it's not fair. Your wife also thinks it's hard. She just doesn't have a choice. And you do. And so walk with gentleness. Showing honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. Because she is an heir with you of the grace of life. Because she also is a recipient of God's love and grace extended to her. And for the result that, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That doesn't seem fair. Wait, if I don't show honor to my wife, God won't listen to my prayers? Yup. That's what this says. Live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think very often people believe that their spiritual relationship doesn't have anything to do with their other relationships. And do you know what? When we're talking about this most intimate relationship with our spouse, it absolutely does. It's really hard to say, oh, I've got a great relationship here, but I'm not treating my spouse very well. I don't think you probably have a great relationship here. Because when we do those things, our prayers may be hindered. He talks about this more in chapter 3, just down a few verses further. Where in verse 12 it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're going to get into that more next week about generally how we treat everyone within the community of Christ. How do we respond to and treat everyone? But right now, in particular, as we're talking about how to treat our spouses, he wants you to know that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He is looking at those whose hidden person in the heart is honoring him and he's saying, that is beautiful. But if he's looking at the hidden person of your heart and he's going, oh, that's not beautiful, he's not listening to your prayers. His face is against those who do evil. If you are not living with your wife in an understanding way, He is not listening to your prayers because you are doing evil. And so it is one of those things where again, Walking alongside men who are saying, my wife is not following Christ. And watching those 
who step into that and say, but I am going to be gentle and gracious and loving. It's difficult. Proverbs says that with you're living with a difficult wife, it's easier to sleep on the corner of the roof. I don't wish that on anyone, but when I see someone who is in that kind of a relationship with a difficult wife and they're walking in gentleness with honor and respect, oh man, that looks good. Well done. Well done. Because who knows, but that by holding on to that rope, they may climb up. And God may use that to save them. And what a beautiful thing that is. This is one of those passages that is ridiculously difficult to prepare for. Because all along the way, I'm going, okay, there's a pitfall there. There's a pitfall there. If I say this, they're going to hear that, and then they're going to tune me out for the whole rest of the sermon. Some of you are just waking up and going, wait, were you talking the rest of that time? I tuned you out way long ago. But as I have been looking at this and meditating on this for the last couple of weeks... I have found it to be so rich. And I hope that for you, this is not the kind of thing that comes across as a legalistic, moralistic, great, now, how hard must it be for me to be a good Christian spouse? Because this is not that. This rather, I am hoping, is, can be for you a hopeful opportunity to glorify God even in a marriage that doesn't feel like it glorifies God. And to have God look at that and say, this is beautiful. And to have an onlooking world look at that and say, that is beautiful. And to have the great potential that your spouse will repent and follow Him and the whole thing will be beautiful top to bottom. Because this is the example that Christ has given for us. That he has subjected himself. For to this you have been called, 1 Peter 2 verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Paul talks about this in in Ephesians in a like manner. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what we get to celebrate now at the Lord's table. That Jesus, the great husband, laid down his life for his bride, his people. Subjecting himself willingly to the suffering on earth. Suffering even to the point of death on the cross so that he might cleanse his bride. So that she might be saved. And we are his bride, the church. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and are called now to submit and to follow in his example. And we get to remember that this morning as we take communion together. And so uh, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, if he is your Savior, I would encourage you during the next song to uh, come up. There's a a table here. There's a table also in the back with a gluten-free option if you need that. And um, come up during the next song, take the cup and the, and the bread back to your seat, and then I will come up actually in the middle of the next song, and we will um, take it all together and then uh, praise him some more. Let's pray. Father, we um, are entrusting ourselves to you, and we recognize that this is not an easy thing to do. It is not easy because it's painful. Because sin gets in the way. Because of the brokenness of the marriages and the sin that comes between us. Father, we recognize that sometimes the marriage is is the most beautiful and wonderful thing. That we delight in it and it honors you and glorifies you and demonstrates who you are to an onlooking world. And yet other times it doesn't feel like that at all. And we have to trust that you, the one who judges justly, will redeem the situation and glorify yourself. either by healing our marriage or by demonstrating your love and grace for us in the midst of the brokenness. So Father, this morning we want to entrust ourselves to you in either case and ask, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.